0: Well, this is tea time in an unusual event in the world, the pandemic. And uh, this is, what, April 8th? Is it April 8th? Three days after my 66th birthday. So, fortunate to be alive. (laughs) Here we are in the pristine Canadian wilderness. Far from all of this turmoil. It's a very nice place to be. And and for us, having to be in seclusion, having to socially isolate, is not a hardship at all. And this is what I hear so much, people having trouble with social isolation. So this is one of the benefits of becoming a meditator and a practitioner of dhamma, is that you learn to be comfortable in in your in solitude and nobody is a refined developed human who cannot find ease and some joy in solitude one of the reflections for monks is do i delight in solitude or not so that's a question that monks have to ask themselves again and again it's one of the Ten recollections, subjects for frequent recollection for a monk is, have I learned to delight in solitude or do I incline towards dependency on the social situation? Humans are social creatures, so it's not something that you're just born with. It's something that you learn along the way as to how to enjoy your own company and you'll see most of the great literature and poetry and philosophers celebrate this, the enjoyment of solitude. And they also note that it's peculiar that people don't discover this, the enjoyment of solitude. They, they always depend and need their uh, company. And that's a, an unfortunate position to be in to be that dependent on you know the company of others because you just can't always get what you want <laughs> so you end up going to a rolling stones concert and listening to that anyway we are we're delighting in our solitude here but we want to communicate so it's not that we're angry at at you all <laughs> out there we're not staying away from you because we don't like you. We appreciate you and hope for your wellness and happiness, but everybody has to uh, just get some distance from each other. And Buddhism is all about this. What we're in is this, some people think we're in an unusual time, you know, a time of illness and death. But actually, there's nothing unusual about this time at all. There's five subjects for frequent re- recollection, which the Buddha recommended for, for lay people, and they also appear as the same for monks and nuns. And uh, that is, to recollect every day, and perhaps more than once every day, maybe four or five times, is that, that it is the nature of humans to get ill, to age, to die and to lose along the way, to lose that which you love. And that is a constant, that's, that's every day, every single moment of every single day, that is a fact of human existence. Illness, aging, death, loss. And then there's the last of the five, and that is, I, my inheritance are my ethical decisions, what I have decided in life, what I have done for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So this is like the story of the, that the Buddha asked the, the king What if you hear that a wall of mountains the size of the Himalayas are rolling towards you from the north towards the kingdom and all living beings are crushed by it. No living being escapes. And then the same message comes from the south then from the east and then from the west. You're surrounded, O king. No living being escapes. Then he asks, what will you do? So, he being a good disciple of the Buddha, and probably having been exposed to the five reflections. So what are the first four? Illness, aging, death, loss. So that's the the mountains as high as the Himalayas surrounding you. What's left out? Last reflection. Whatever I do for good or for ill, that will be my inheritance. So the king answers him, I will do acts of charity and keep the precepts. So that's the fifth reflection. So that story is really about the five subjects for frequent recollection. But that's the case for all of us. Every now and then we get startled by these events. Sometime in, what is it, 2000 and three or four, there was a tsunami in uh, Asia. Remember what year it was? I think it was 2004, yeah. A tsunami that, that hit Sri Lanka and Thailand and the coast of India and a um, quarter million people died in about an hour. So we're not even to that level with this pandemic over a larger term. And it was kind of hit as a shock. We were in retreat, in winter retreat at that time, and I was asked to go to Vancouver. I was looking forward to winter retreat, the solitude, etc. And then I got this email about this news, and then the news got worse and worse and worse. At first they said, you know, a a few thousand people. You know, they were just counting the bodies that they had found, etc. This is the way that the news and the governments report things. They just, just a trickle. But eventually, you know, it became obvious it was a quarter million people at least. So the Thai and uh, Sri Lankans got together in Vancouver and they invited monks to do some uh, blessings. And they invited me down to give a talk about this and they had some of the survivors there who had been in the tsunami, had been swept away in the tsunami and had lived. And they, they came up on stage and told uh, their various stories, and then I was invited to give a talk on it. But immediately what came to mind was the tsunami is very similar to this, these, this story about the king, you know. And the fact is that all you're left with, this, this kind of thing is going on all the time. I mean, even where a pandemic like this happens, probably in the large statistical view of things, it won't make much difference to the mortality rate the large mortality rate on on the planet because every, about uh, even at the longest, everybody on the planet, even the ones who were born today, everybody will be dead within about 100 years, about a century, so you can divide the population of the planet, which is approaching 8 billion people. 8 billion people have to die in the next 100 years, and that's a lot of people. And it amounts to 100 million or more have to die on a regular basis every year from various things. And so the statistics won't wobble very much, even though you have this huge tsunami of, of COVID deaths. So we're always in this situation... and but every now and then it seems to the illusion of it being really present comes up but this is where buddhists should always be fully aware of this truth all the time it's it's really not news part of this pandemic though is that the economy also will be shaken so they don't know <laughs> and here's here's another thing about buddhism <laughs> we're big on uncertainty on the fact that you can't really know these things. So there's all kinds of people predicting what will happen to the economy and, and what what the results will be. And it's just a wild guess in the dark because it's really incalculable. The numbers and the different ramifications are quite beyond linear computation. So this is happening. And... The economic repercussions will affect all kinds of ways of life. And this is again this uncertainty, the element of uncertainty. And the Buddhist response is to be somehow at ease with this. You have to actually rehearse, you have to do the opposite of what the mind wants to do. The mind wants to seek certainty, security, and that's a basic mistake to feel at, to only feel at ease when you feel secure and stable is a big mistake. So we actually have to reverse the operations of our mind and and remind ourselves every day that it's never, ever secure. It's never safe. And that is the fact. But how should we feel about this? Certainly people become aware of the the insecurity of life, like in the midst of wars and in the midst of economic collapses, the depression and all these kind of things. They're aware of it, but how do they respond to it? They respond with anxiety and terror and nightmares and shock, post-traumatic stress disorder, etc., But this is not how you should respond to it, because it's always the case. This, this, sometimes it's a little bit amplified, sometimes it's close to you, but, so in, in the present, you hear nothing else on the news but this pandemic stuff, but it shouldn't produce any sense of anxiety or excessive concern whatsoever, because it's always the case. The uncertainty of it, how close death is, is unknown to you, it can be an inch away at any time. There is never a time when it's, when life, human life is safe and secure, so we really want to turn to that and then just exercise that, and recall that every single day and you bring that up at the same time as you're relaxing and you're feeling at ease in the midst of this, in the midst of this absolute insecurity and uncertainty, the proper response is ease, and non-fear, no fear. Equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, perhaps. But no fear. Those are the wrong emotions to bring to this. There's not a, it's not a timely thing. So there's not a time for fear and a time not for fear. It's always a time not for fear. <laughs> because it's always dangerous. this is an exercise that one has to do every day and it, it doesn't have to be in absolute stillness or silence. The mind doesn't need to be in stillness. It can be, you can be walking around and doing your chores and functioning and interacting with people, but this is the right attitude and it's, it's slippery. And you know, I, I had to work on this myself for many, many years to get your mind to acknowledge this and, and, and respond to it in a different way. So you're you're not responding emotionally the same way. And it, this is a kind of a repetitive exercise you do. You just repeat the exercise again and again. And you you fail at it. You get caught at times. You you lose it. You you can't remember it. But you need to repeat it again and again. And and the repetition is not in. You're not bringing up fear in the midst of this. Sometimes the idea is that say you do this mindfulness exercise about the nature of death, maranasati, mindfulness of death, or mindfulness of a corpse meditation, etc., going on, (laughs) contemplating corpse, your own corpse, your own body. And sometimes people seem to indicate that you're supposed to do this, sort of bring up your fear around this, but that is not the point of the exercise, it's not to bring up your fear around this, it's to contemplate this in serenity, and when fear comes up, you know actually that you're bringing the wrong emotion to this structure. So you abandon. If, if that's the case, then you can let that go. Come back to something like loving kindness or the breath. Calm the mind and then go back to like a topic like mindfulness of death. So we have to reflect on this. Illness, aging, death, loss. And people respond to each of those in a different way. Some people say, I don't mind dying, I just don't want the pain around it. Or as Woody Allen says, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens, you know. <laughs> so people have, it's, and some people are, the loss is worse than death. So they will choose death over loss. So you see people, the famous jumping out of windows at the Wall Street Crash in the Depression, nineteen twenty nine. You know, executives and investors and so forth losing their fortunes and just jumping out of windows—just madness. So they—they were—they're were more averse to loss than they were to death. You know, everybody's got their thing. <laughs> Take your choice: illness, aging, death, and loss. <laughs> which one? Which one bothers you the most? <laughs> Some people just don't want to uh, die. Uh, to want to age, they want to live. Live hard and leave a beautiful corpse. <laughs> twenty-seven is an ideal age to to depart. You <laughs> still got some uh, beauty in you. <laughs> you know. You notice how many of the the rock stars have left at twenty-seven. So um, take your choice. And actually, you know, these are not. Illness, aging, death, and loss are, n- are not really intrinsically serious topics. It's the fear that goes with it that's the serious topic. The Buddha is focused on the suffering, the, the psychological dimension of how we respond to this impossible situation. You can't get around this stuff. You only have one reasonable choice, and that is stop being afraid. That's the only reasonable response to this because you can't get out of the illness aging death and loss that's not negotiable <laughs> you can try to negotiate you won't you won't get any worth that except this ultimate aim in which is in buddhism is in nibbana and that is called the deathless that is the end of suffering the cessation of suffering right liberation. So that's a good thing to have in mind as a possibility. It is a very exalted and high and very difficult to understand concept, but we can get a taste of it. We're not always in fear. So when you're not in fear, when you're feeling without fear, when you're feeling balanced and so forth, you probably like that. <laughs> I think I'd like more of that. and I'd like to be able to bring this into every situation as well. So this is uh, kind of uh, the tea time for this isolation. We were, uh, you know, I'm, I just normally we we record Dhamma talks and so forth, and and we haven't put up many of our tea times. There has been some request for recording tea times, so I thought today, since we're devoid of guests. We have closed the monastery to guests in order to... By the way, so we're not careless with, with these things like illness. It's not that we are ignoring the health regulations or putting ourselves in the way of harm or anything like this. It's illness, aging, death, and loss. We'll find you. And But the, the Buddha is uh, saying, in the meantime, take care. <laughs> Do be careful. <laughs> no need to be careless. Show some concern for yourself. Uh, follow the regulations. So show some concern for others as well, but be fully aware of the imminent and always present possibility of of these facts of life arriving. So, uh, as in the format, the normal format of tea time, invite any questions. It's too bad we really can't broadcast and just receive questions from anybody out there who happens to be listening. Uh, unfortunately, we're on—we have limited broadband uh, uh, opportunities. Uh, we're on satellite. It's amazing that we can actually put these things up at all in, uh, on our YouTube channel or on our podcasts. But uh, we will—we have a few people here, so. If there are any questions, feel free to ask. And if not, that's fine too. Ajahn Sona. Yes.
1: You had some talks a couple of years ago about how the see cancer. And I think reframing it in this time frame is a helpful piece perhaps to people. And I remember one element that you spoke of was not to think about it and seek the voice of the wise and cancer is or other illnesses often a person may not have it amongst the society but we're talking about people who are all at home with their kids or out of work or working from home and how do they not think about it or what do you suggest they do when they're in isolation or they're in an enclosed environment that's very different and perhaps uncomfortable that they're not used to
0: Yeah, this is so. What are the psychological strategies, how to deal with these illnesses? And some of these illnesses are—it's well known that they're they can be terminal; they can lead to death. So there's a lot of strategies out there. You get all these these groups, you know, group therapy where you're sharing your grief about these illnesses and so forth. And I my I had to really reflect on it. what, how would the Buddha talk about this? It's basically, how would the Buddha feel about this? How, when he is sick, when he's near death, how does he feel about it? He's not really traumatized by it, he's not concerned by it, he, he doesn't think about it. It's not that you're thinking about your particular illness, it's, it's you think there is such a thing as illness, and this is inevitably bound up with having a human body. Now. How should I respond to this fact? Is it wise to respond with anxiety, with fear? Uh, Should I think about it all the time? If I, why do I think about it all the time? Uh, Etc. Is it natural, or am I in denial? Now, here's the other thing: denial. This is you'll get this. uh, There was a woman who had um, MS, I think it was, and she. She was quite sort of naturally philosophical about this. She is a a mother with kids and a family. She was a nurse. And she got this. It came up. The symptoms came up. And it it was really progressing. And she, the doctor said that she should go and see a psychiatrist because she seemed to be In denial (laughs) and uh, and she was she actually had had came to the monastery a few times her mother actually brought her who is a regular brought her here and uh, she we were amazed she was in a wheelchair by this time and uh, she was really very Buddhist about it like she was really not in fear about this and she went to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist talked to her, and she said, "What, what am I supposed to be afraid of? <laughs> you, know, you don't know people die. Like I work as a nurse, you know. Like, <laughs> what do you, what, what do you think I'm in denial of? Should you think I should be sad or something about this or what?" So the psychiatrist actually agreed with her, and he actually phoned the doctor and said, "You know, you're in denial. <laughs> you keep thinking that." There's something terribly sad, and that somebody should be really overcome and have a big problem about this. And she's she's responding in in a in an enlightened fashion, in a philosophical fashion, in an intelligent fashion. And you're you're saying she's in denial. <laughs> you're in denial. <laughs> so uh yes, all of this grief and stuff, which is expected, it's kind of like Saying every you're telling people that they have to be up terribly upset about all this stuff, and you're implying that there's something wrong with them if they're not. But it's it's not that way. That's a reinforcement. And that's a suggestion from the social values around you. You're being told how to feel about this, and you're being told that you're, you're in denial somehow if you don't feel this way. So. This is a problem, and uh, so the video that we did on how the wise see cancer is. So, how how should you do this if you haven't done a lot of sophisticated uh, meditative exercises about this? When you get told that you've got cancer, when you any of these illnesses, how how should you deal with it? And I, my s- strategy, a suggestion, strong suggestion is. Don't think about it. (laughs) In other words, denial. (laughs) Why are you bringing up all of this unnecessary emotional suffering? You already have cancer. You already have these illnesses. Don't think about it. If you can't process it without this extra emotional suffering, then try not to think about it. You won't hear that kind of talk from the general public, and you won't hear that from people. They'll be always encouraged. How do you feel, and how's this, and how's that? As if that's going to do anything for you. It's not going to do anything for you. That's just going to make you feel bad, emotionally suffering. That's just, why do it? Why talk about it like that? So, and the other alternative is listen to the voice of the wise. Let somebody, a voice of wisdom that isn't encouraging you to feel this sadness and go into your this and go into your that. Just pull pull you out of that. I mean, you can have cancer and not know it, and you feel fine. <laughs> you, can, you can have pains in your body and so forth, but you're not really worried or anything. You've got the cancer, and you actually have the right attitude. You're, you're not troubled by it. So, only when you find out, you go to get the get the, find out that you got the cancer, suddenly your emotional state changes. Like nothing changed. You had the cancer before, and you felt, fu- you, you were emotionally fine. Now you find out, about this word, cancer or whatever it is, MS or, and you suddenly your emotional structure changes. Why? Why? And it changes for the worse as well. It changes for the worse. So this is the gist of this whole idea about how to deal with this. The Buddha is, it's not denial. All that grieving and all of that distress and everything is denial that's the denial the denial of the fact that that you're born this way you're born with these this potential of course if you could get a good enough genetic profile of you you'd find out that at 30 you're going to get this (laughs) and that actually some of the tests can be done now they're so predictive they're so highly suggestive that some people even have operations ahead of time mastectomies and so forth, because it's so certain that they will get breast cancer or something they ahead of time the genetic probability of it is so high so that's like knowing ahead of time but all you got to know is I was born and if you're born as a human you have a predisposition to illness a certainty of aging and a certainty of death and if you Are shocked by that or distressed by that then you're in denial. So this is uh, undoing this is the thing and it just happens. Cancer is one of the things that makes a lot of people nervous. (laughs) There's all kinds of ways to go. Cancer is an epidemic as well. It's a huge widespread ailment increasing in the population. And so it's just an ex- it's just one of many um, dreadful possibilities for the human body. But the dreadful possibility is built into, into birth. Yeah. And there's only one way. It's a dreadful possibility for the body, but it is not a dreadful possibility for the mind. So one is to, as the Buddha says in the Dhammapada, know that the body is a fragile jar. Make a castle of your mind. But you need to hear that again and again and again and again when you people go into these groups these they they're in these illness groups and they're reinforcing all kinds of uh unskillful strategies and they might even have a a therapist there a psychologist there who's also convinced that you need to bring up your sorrow and your this and that yeah it is. so how is this helping how is this uh, helping anything how, how is this you know, I don't know. So that's how to think about it from a Buddhist point of view. This illness, aging, death, and loss is a regular subject for frequent recollection, whether you're sick or whether you're not, whether you're healthy or whether you're not. You need to reflect on it. But you you don't reflect in fear and in denial or wishing or hoping that it didn't happen. Why me? Why why me? This This kind of stuff. Ajahn Brahma is often saying, why not you? (laughs) Yes, why not me? (laughs) So this is a, a, a different way of looking at these things. And you can walk around in this world in touch with reality and okay. You can be okay in touch with reality and be okay.
1: One of the strategies that I see online with certain psychological circles is to reframe your situation always and think, it's where you place your attention that matters. And so they're they're essentially saying, in this situation that I find myself in, where can I place my attention so that I am seeing the, the plus side or the bearable side or the non-fearful side? Is that what you're trying to convey, or is it not?
0: Yes, that is. Yes, to reframe the situation into reality. Uh, the Buddha is just blunt realist. He's just saying, what, what is all of this nonsense? Like, you're, you appear to be shocked that you're ill. You know, like, oh my God, I've got the flu or whatever. I you know, like, why? You know, poor me. That's the wrong attitude to have. It's like, you need to... You have what you have, it feels like it feels. By the way, you can use any medicine you can to relieve, reduce the pain, and you can use any strategy of the mind to also reduce the pain. The Buddha himself had a pain in his back, and he said, the only time I've out of it is when I'm in jhana. You know, when I'm in deep samadhi, I don't feel the pain. And he did practice samadhi. Reframing the situation, and, but it matters which frame you use, how you reframe the situation. So it's uh, important that we don't say, oh, you'll, you'll get out of it, you know, or you'll be fine. Or, this kind of talk, uh, that's not what you need to hear because you know it's not true. It's, uh, it's always the case that things are out of control. They always are. And you need to be fine in the midst of things being out of control. You can't wait for some sort of false hope that things will get under control. So, and you don't, it's not about the benefits either. So, you know, uh, when I die, then there'll be more food in the world for everybody else. Or, you know, like this kind of stuff. Like, what the? (laughs) You know, maybe there won't be, you know, like, (laughs) so... It's just sheer, well-described reality is what the Buddha is saying. Like, first of all, let's just talk about what the reality is here. And this, this is about for humans, but not all humans can hear this. Some humans are not intelligent enough to hear this. Animals cannot hear this. But animals, in some ways, they don't, they're not worried about dying. They're not worried about it. They have pain, but they don't think, I'm going to die. I don't want to die. <laughs> they don't think that way. <laughs> they just die. <laughs> they feel sick. And uh, a lot of people are projecting onto their, their animals, their dogs and their cats and so forth. They're, they're just, oh... But the dog is probably suffering much less than a human. Like, the dog is not thinking, I could die. You know, like, no, he's not thinking that. He's, he's just... I can't get up. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's all. There's no other dimension to it. So humans have this capacity of imagination. They can project into the future. They're, uh, one of the sayings is, uh, "They're the only animal that knows they're going to die. They, they, they're aware of their mortality." But that's that's a problem. That's your advanced, you know, your development of your. Prefrontal cortexes, I'll let you into a different universe than the other animals, but it also makes you aware of your mortality, and so it's the, it's one of the most important. Well, it's not one of the most. It's it's the priority in life is to grapple with this fact that you can see, you understand. It's there's you're not getting out alive. <laughs> Nobody is, but. What, how should we respond to that? How should you feel about that? What is an intelligent emotional response to this? The Buddha says, well, you know, like it, by not wishing it was some other way or being shocked by it or not thinking about it is not the way to do it. It's to see it clearly and understand what would be the, the best emotional response to this and it is not suffering rather than suffering so it's the area where you have a choice you can suffer or not so take the door number 2 not suffer yeah. now of course when you go and visit somebody in the hospice <laughs> if you if you if you decide to become a hospice worker or a hospice visitor this kind of language is you don't want to lay this trip on everybody. They're not ready for it sometimes. On the other hand, they may be open to it. A lot of people who are visiting the hospice are, are giving wrong messages. They're sharing in, in their grief, and etc., feeling that that's the appropriate thing, but it may not be so. The Buddha is big also on uh, not dwelling on uh, your remorse or your past regrets and so forth, especially as you approach death. At at any time in life, really, you shouldn't be remorseful, dwelling in remorse. It's a natural thing. The Buddha is not encouraging it. He's He's also saying, don't do things that you will later regret. But having done things that you regret... Try to undo the remorse over it and not dwell on it because it just is rehearsing the negative events of your life. What should you be rehearsing? Positive events? Looking back and re- revisiting your acts of generosity and kindness. Those should be played out again and again. And especially as you approach death, uh, and uh, the advice for the for those who are dying is do not dwell on your failings and negative feelings past it darkens your consciousness at a time when you really don't need any more darkness so uh, to encourage one to stay away from uh, sadness remorse fear all of those things especially because you're dying (laughs) you want to reshape your consciousness in the brightest way possible So that is the essential message of Buddhism. And you see in the culture, actually, it, it pervades even into the you know, the folk culture. You notice in Thailand for funerals and so forth, it is a lot of different response than you might hear in the West uh, towards these things. A kind of an acceptance. Now, the, What the monks chant, a, a funeral chant, which is basically simply a description of reality basically that here is a body it is devoid consciousness has left it's it's like a log of wood on the ground and basically all it is is a it's a weird funeral thing it's just like a description of what here's a body uh, there's no consciousness here nothing to see here <laughs> it's gone <laughs> consciousness moved on it's very short and Interesting, just a, almost a scientific description of what has happened here. Anicca, vata, sankara, impermanent are all formations. If you if you're surprised, I just want to remind you, <laughs> all things are impermanent. <laughs> in the meantime, in the midst of this situation which is like a permanent epidemic it starts when a human is born you're in an epidemic it's just a matter of time then all the more reason for kindness and generosity and goodwill and sharing and uh and no fear that's the best response to this Another question
1: so you've given us the best response to our current situation. now I'm going to look forward and Sister Mon, one time in a past um, tea time, looked at you and said, "Is it enchantment or is it disenchantment?"
0: <laughs> is it enchantment or disenchantment yes well that's that's very good uh, i'm glad you said that, Sister Mon. (laughs) (laughs) Sister Mon is sitting beside me here. This is the miracle of the the magic theatre of audio. It's like radio play, where you cannot see the people in the room. Sister Mon is on my left. Uh, John Jotipalo is on my right. And uh, other uh, residents and stewards of the monastery are sitting in a magic square in the... Six feet apart, yes, mostly. (laughs) And the question was whether this lightness of heart and non-fear is enchanting or disenchanting. Enchanting means that this is the idea of love of life, like sort of a love of existence, to be enchanted and... And, not, and, and sort of celebrating existence without fear and with loving-kindness. And the, the ultimate vision of the Buddha is disenchantment, finally, is, is Nibbida, or seeing that this is not a place to want to continue on in. So this is samsara, is, well, actually a state of mind. Now, samsara is not a place. It's a state, it's a condition of consciousness. And um, the Buddha says, don't misunderstand this as, as some place that you can find a satisfactory condition in, ultimately unsatisfactory. So that we, we need to uh, acknowledge this uh, ultimate illness, aging, death, and loss in any possible or conceivable realm. We need to conduct ourselves in the midst of this, in the midst of this samsara, this situation, this unsatisfactory situation, conduct ourselves with great goodwill and generosity, kindness, which minimizes the suffering content of it. At the same time, we have to have the ultimate vision that we need to ultimately free ourselves and and not return. <laughs> this is kind of the ultimate stage of maturity is that being there, done that, it always ends in tears. <laughs> but we have addictive tendencies and the addictive tendencies are based on delusions. We We forget and we go back. So this is you can see this in, in profound uh, addiction, why people keep going back to very unskillful things, because they can't remember the downside of it. So basically all of samsara and the tendency to take birth to begin with is a forgetfulness of the downside, the other, the other end of it, which is it ends. And it's a matter of loss. You, you lose in the end. And the, from a Buddhist point of view, is he says in the Dhammapada, even in heaven, it ends in tears. <laughs> now we're from a, uh, a Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian society where heaven is often described as an eternal condition of uh, a bliss or peace or safety or something. But it's and it can be quite disturbing to the. Christian and post-Christian mind to come across this idea that heaven is, unfortunately, is not. It's it's, it's a very long uh, period of time of, of well-being, but it's not. It ends as well. This is this is quite disturbing, and um, and people can be very strongly in denial of that. It's it's stuff you you don't want to hear. So, it's uh, it's quite a thing to face, actually, the the truth. The Dhamma about the intrinsic flaw in existence—it's just it's built into into all existence—is that it's problematic. So this is a very high idea, and uh, those who are listening to this, and and maybe they'll be listening to this as never really having heard Dhamma or Buddhism. You might be. uh, a meditator, perhaps you've gone to a mindfulness course or a loving-kindness course, but you really haven't been exposed to the larger visions of Buddhism, of the Dhamma. So you might find this a little uh, unsettling. (laughs) However, uh, this is a Buddhist monastery. Now, if I don't talk about these ultimate things here, where do you talk about it? And in the West, uh, Buddhism has arrived as a popular... It it seems to be a popular alternative to many of the other uh, religions and philosophies. One reason is it's uh, intrinsically peaceful. Uh, there's no violent uh, admonition in it, and also there's a lot of psychology to it. So you, you get to meditate, and you love. Who can complain about loving kindness or mindfulness and so forth? But quite often the the larger view of things is is not well known, and so and. Those who teach these courses uh, of mindfulness and loving kindness know quite well uh, their audience, and uh, they know that the general population is really often not there to hear grand truths. They're actually there for some therapy to get them through the next two weeks, you know, <laughs> or the next year, or to improve the emotional quality of their life, which it does. But it is a disservice to the buddha and the dhamma and the sangha to not tell people about the larger dimensions of what the buddha really taught there are there's a time and place for it so it's not something you blurt out everywhere on the street corner or the buddha was had discretion you know he he didn't he looked at the person he was talking to and and he recognized that certain people are It's not the time and place to talk about big issues here. This is the time and place for just some practical advice. So he's not wanting to shock people, or he's always interested in beneficial speech. So he's interested in, it's got to be true, but it's got to be beneficial at the same time. So if you say things that a person is just not ready to hear, it will not be beneficial. It may be true, but it won't be beneficial. So you, there's a certain amount of skill in this. So if you're listening to this and it's shocking the heck out of you, then stop listening. <laughs> Go back to mindfulness and loving kindness. I have a number of videos on this channel <laughs> that you will be delighted by. It'll be very therapeutic for you, but the, the larger truths are there. And we're in the midst of this pandemic, so we have to face this illness, aging, loss, death and loss is the big picture. Yes.
1: So sort of in thinking about this topic, I think about the topic of the breath and breath meditation. And can you talk a little bit about when someone is very sick, um, they could just be very sick or close to death and the breath no longer becomes a pleasant or a neutral object. Can you talk about kind of what that transition is or what that looks like.
0: Yeah, and it's very appropriate at this time because this is the way you die with this COVID-19 is you're intubated. You can't breathe. You're drowning in your own inability of your lungs to, to process the oxygen. And they put a tube down your throat, which is very uh, obnoxious and painful. And uh, so breathing itself becomes problematic. But it's important that you actually practice this ahead of time. You really should practice being with the breath because it pulls you into the present. No breath, no life. So the breath will be with you until the end. These days now, uh, how they deal with people in the advanced stages of this is that they intubate them first, put some oxygen in there, but if they're continuing to go downhill, then they, they put them into a, into a coma, and then you lose consciousness. So the last thing you'll ever experience is your own breath. And usually, uh, in a very many cases, you don't come out of that coma. That's the last thing, and you die. However... Uh, Still, uh, if you have invested lots of time into breath meditation, it's a very worthwhile thing. Your consciousness is collected at that time. It's the only, it's the something that is there with you. You're not freaking out, and it can be very beneficial. I talked to a woman who uh, was who had come and learned to practice breath meditation just uh, for a year or two. And she ended up in the emergency with some sort of rest- constriction of the breath, uh, some sort of uh, swelling of the throat or something like this, you know, anaphylactic shock or something. And they, medical people were quite amazed at how calm she was. They often deal with anaphylactic panic, you know, as you can't, you can't breathe. It happens like a bee sting or an allergy reaction, and so forth, and you, your throat closes up. And um, she was recounting it. She's saying, "I was really just the slowness, the, this little trickle of breath, and I was just staying with it and staying. You know, I was, I was able to be lucid and calm because of having practiced so much with the breath. Yeah, you know, in the commentaries as well." They say that one who cultivates the breath meditation can, one of the side effects is you can anticipate your death, that you have an intuition of, of the end of, of breathing, you know, you have an intuition about when your death is coming and that's one of the sort of benefits of uh, breath meditation. You will see different respiratory responses uh, to panic like you'll see doctors looking at respiration and one of the features of uh, the person is in panic is the respirations per minute goes up right 30 40 respirations per minute and one of them of calmness is that the respirations go down and one of the side effects of practicing breath meditation is calmness and the respirations per minute go down. There's some stories in the, you find this in the Visuddhimaga about monks predicting their death. And some of them uh, die, say, they, they predict it and they say, I, will, "I tomorrow I will be sitting in meditation and I will die. And there's this particular story, which I haven't thought of for 30 years or so, and it is a senior monk who has been practicing breath meditation he says to the junior monks you know you you've uh, you've heard of monks uh, dying you know in, in in meditation in lotus meditation and so forth uh, have you ever seen one die walking i want you to come to the terrace tomorrow in the afternoon i will be doing walking meditation and you will get to see a monk die in walking meditation so they, they show up and he, he's walking back and forth and at the end of one of the, just before he turns around, he dies. <laughs> he knew and was, he said, ah, that dying while sitting is for amateurs. <laughs> I can do it standing, I can do it walking. <laughs> so this is, uh, to look at this breath, and its relationship to, to death because it is the last thing, you know, the last breath. No breath, no, no life. So it's intimately connected to this. And the Buddha talks at one time to a group of monks about how do you do death meditation? How do you do maranasati, mindfulness of death? And then they one, one says, I, I think I could die next week, you know. How about the next month? I could die tomorrow. Third monk, I could die at the end of this breath. And the Buddha says, that's good enough. The idea of dying next week or tomorrow is is not truly in touch with reality, but the end of this breath is close enough. It can happen before the end of this breath. All you have to do is have a heart attack or a stroke and you're done it's that fast or if you're in the war just a bullet through the head is that that's, that's that fast <laughs> car accident bing it's that fast so we have to we, we look with our mind with our imagination over the possibilities and we just have to look with a relaxed stomach and not with fear or of, of any of these things, and uh, say, and and allow ourselves to go into the facts of life without with serenity. say, you know, these are the real possibilities, and I, I need to practice my emotional response to this. Now I need to be calm and and of course that's all uh, first responders and the police and the soldiers and everything they' trained again and again and again to be calm in the worst situation, the calmer you have to be. You can't freak out. You, you, you can't be, lose your mind. That's the worst thing you can do in the dire situation. So this is just the fact that it, we're, we're always at war with the facts of life illness, aging, death is always a constant companion. And this is, the Buddha says, this is your constant companion, you know, death, maranasati. So uh, this is uh, tea time for today. This is the kind of talks we have, uh, sometimes on a regular basis, but I thought it was uh, particularly appropriate this time when we're Guests are not able to come to the monastery now, but we are able to get some communication through, through media.